Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them and has acted shamefully. For I said, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she not, shall not find them. Then she will, shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me now, or for it was for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they had used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And she will put, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bales, which she, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. 
1995, Christopher Reeve, you remember Christopher Reeve, the Superman actor, fell from a horse in a riding accident. He has since passed away, but he fell from a horse in a riding accident that severed his spinal cord and paralyzed him from the shoulders down. And in the days which followed, both he and his mother considered pulling the plug. They didn't think it was worth living. In his memoir called Still Me, how he talks about how he came back or he battled back from the accident, he says that he shared his thoughts with his wife, Dana. This is what he says, I mouthed my first lucid words to her. Maybe we should let me go, he recalled. But his wife, through tears, persuaded him to fight back, saying, I want you to know that I will be with you for the long haul, no matter what. You're still you, and I love you. Now, here's my question. If someone, if, if you love someone that much, to what lengths would you be willing to go to ensure their safety and their well-being? What Hosea is teaching us is that the love of God for his people is beyond anything we can know or imagine, anything we could even conceive of, and he's willing to go to any lengths to ensure his people's well-being. Do you believe that? I want us to look at four things about his love from this passage. Four things about his love. Here they are. The first one is the pleading love of God. The second one is the thwarting love of God. The third one is the severe love of God. And the fourth one is the pursuing love of God. So those four, okay, the pleading, thwarting, severe pursuing love of God. You're going to have to listen fast because we got a lot to cover. Number one, the pleading love of God. So what's happening in this passage? Well, Hosea was a prophet of God. He served under a boatload of kings in Israel and in Judah. I'm not even going to name them. No time. Hurry, hurry. God said to Hosea, imagine this now. He told him that he had to go marry a prostitute. He told him he had to go marry a prostitute. Can you imagine that? And from that marriage come three children. She agreed. But Gomer, his wife, continues to leave in order to pursue her lovers. And God tells Hosea to go after her again, again. So the whole book, obviously, is an analogy. It's an analogy of God and Israel. He's equating Israel with Gomer. But here's the thing. It's not just about Israel, right? It's also about us. It's about us. So in chapter 2, what becomes painfully obvious is that Gomer has left home again. Had three children with with Hosea, and now she has left again to go out and find her lovers. 
So in verse 2, what Hosea is doing now is he's pleading, but he does it through his children. He says this, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. She's left him. They're not living as husband and wife. Plead with your mother that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. What's going on here? Well, Hosea is heartbroken. He asks his children to plead with their mother. He's not seeing her. I guess the children were seeing her. He asked them to plead with her to leave her life of prostitution because it can't end well. Very bad things are going to happen to her if she stays there. So nakedness in the Old Testament is always associated with extreme need or with shame. And he is deeply concerned for her. He knows she will suffer all of these things if she continues in this life that she is pursuing for herself. But, but she's just brazen. She just goes after these lovers. Can you imagine what Hosea is going through? God is asking him to live through this as a living example of what God's going to do with his people. This is, what, this is what this is here for. To be a lesson to the Israelites. They were following after Baal. They were prostituting themselves as it were. And God is a jealous God. God loves his people with this holy jealousy. And he knows that if they go off on their own, it will not end well. Look at what Gomer wanted. She's running after her lovers in verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So she was not the type that would just have a place that people would come to. She was actually out looking for them. She went out looking for them. Why? Because in her mind, these lovers promised her bread and water, wool and linen. They promised her food and clothing. These were the things she was actually after. And Hosea is pleading with her through her children, but she's obviously not listening. So this is what God did with Israel. He would send them prophets he sent them Hosea, a real prophet, as a living prophecy. An acted out prophecy so that they could see what this prophet of God, what God was asking him to do, to go marry this prostitute. This is how God talked to his people, through prophets. And brothers and sisters, this is what preaching is supposed to be about. 
This is what we do Sunday after Sunday. This is what preaching is supposed to be about. So often people come to church to hear a nice sermon to make them feel good that talk about grace and love and joy and goodness. Now, I believe in all of those things. I'm committed to all of those things. But I also believe that the only way we can understand love and grace and joy and goodness is if we understand our own hearts. And though we might like to identify with Hosea as the ones that show mercy, the truth is that the book of Hosea is identifying us with Gomer the prostitute. That's why it's here. We chase our lovers who will give us bread and water, our wool, our flax, our oil, and our drink. This is what we're about. We're busy getting our daily needs met. This is occupying most of our time. Our hearts have gotten more joy from football than from Sunday worship. We've gotten more joy from a date night than we have from opening God's word together. We've gotten more joy from going on vacation than we have in praying together. I'm not saying this to make to bring guilt or anything. I'm just saying this is what we do. And so what does God do with all of this? Well, if you belong to him, he turns up the heat. That's what he does. If you belong to him, he turns up the heat. So in the next three points, I want to show you how he turns up the heat. Two in a hard way, one in a very good way. Three ways of turning up the heat, and they're all introduced with the word therefore. Each one of them is introduced with the word therefore. And as my seminary professors always said, that when you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself what it's there for. Is that nifty or what? Never forget that. So point number two, the thwarting love of God. Verse six, therefore, after all this before, she has gone after her lovers Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. See, often God will block what we want. Here he is blocking Gomer from her lusts and her passions. He blocks her path to her lovers so that she will turn back to her husband. How about you? Have you had things blocked in your life? Maybe you didn't get that boyfriend or that girlfriend you so wanted. Perhaps you didn't get that job you wanted. Maybe, maybe your life didn't turn out exactly as you wanted. Maybe your dreams were devastated and you were never able to accomplish exactly what you wanted to accomplish. Perhaps you didn't make the money you wanted to make. You wish you had a whole lot more. Perhaps your retirement isn't everything you cracked it up to be. Do you feel like you've been blocked in your life? Don't be surprised at my saying that this is God working in your life. This is God working in your life. He doesn't give you everything you want. 
You might look and say, well, this isn't the type of God I believe in. If he's for us, why would he block us? I believe in a God of love. I believe in a God that will, that will just love us and accept us and just let us do what we want to do. Give us freedom to do whatever we want to do. See, if he's for us, why would he block us? Why would he cause hard things to happen? I don't know if you remember that movie, The Stepford Wives. It was a movie about uh, how the men in a town, in a particular town, were able to, I forget if they drugged the women or they, they did something to the women so that the women basically operated as robots and gave their men whatever they wanted anything at all. They served their men. The men would come home and they would wait on them hand and foot and they would do whatever you wanted and they would move around the house and they gave them whatever, whatever, whatever they wanted. And the men were living large. The men loved it. The women were robots. Uh, so what was the problem? Well, no one would say that these marriages were about intimacy of relationship. It was one group using the other group to get what they wanted. There's no relationship in it at all. All the women did was say yes to their husbands about everything. There was no love there. And the husbands were using the wives for their own gain. So this is the thing about Christianity. It's about a relationship with God. God pursues his people because he wants a relationship with them. But see, a relationship can't just be one-sided. If God just gives me everything that I want, then he's a robot that I control. I don't love him. I just use him to get what I want. And I pray, oh God, give me this. Oh God, give me that. Oh God, make my job work out. Oh God, let me get that boyfriend or that girlfriend. Oh God, this is my dream and I want to do this. Oh God, do this. This is what we do. We plead with him. But see, that's not a relationship with God. That's using God to get what I want. And God won't have any part of that. He wants no part of that. See, God wants a relationship, and in a relationship, sometimes people say no. Now, God is the perfect side of the relationship, but even then, he allows us to walk away from him. He allows us to run from him before he draws us back. He turns up the heat, and he thwarts. He doesn't let us get everything we want. Imagine what kind of people we would be if we got exactly everything we wanted. Just give a child everything they want, and good luck parenting that child. We can't do this. This is not good for us. There's no relationship in it. It becomes about us. But here's what happens when we get thwarted. It can go one of two ways. We can become bitter, which many, many people do, or we can accept it as the loving hand of God. Um, so he does this so that we will push back into him. This is why he thwarts us. So we will go back to our first husband. 
and stop pursuing all the lovers that will lead us to disaster. Number three, the severe love of God. Sometimes God goes further than just thwarting. He goes further than just not letting us accomplish a dream or something like that. Look at what it says in verse 9. Again, there's the therefore. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And then down in verse 12, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. So it's not just that he blocks her from going to her lovers. It goes much deeper than that. He blocks the reason for why she goes after her lovers. And what's the reason? Because she thinks that those lovers will provide for her better than her husband does. If she makes herself available to these lovers, they will give her all the things that she's been craving. So it's not really about her prostitution. It's what she gets out of it. And God says he will block this. He will turn it off. They, she thinks they'll provide the sustenance. She clearly doesn't believe that her husband can provide that. Well, you see the analogy, right? Israel going after the Baals. God can't provide the rain. Baal's got to provide the rain. And here we are pursuing our dreams, thinking that it's about us, that we have to be fulfilled somehow, that I don't want that job because it's not fulfilling to me. Well, maybe there's another reason to have a job. Maybe it's just because God wants you there as his ambassador in a place. See, it's not about us. And so God takes those things away from her. There are so many examples in the Bible about this. Remember Jacob? He had a favorite son, and it was, it was Joseph, because he was born to his favorite wife, and he gave him a coat of many, many colors, and, and it was a beautiful coat, and he doted on that son, and the other sons hated Joseph because their father loved him more than he loved them. It was very plain, and it was very obvious. Well, what happened? The brothers sold him down to Egypt, brought the coat, and put blood on it, and said to Jacob, your son is dead. Now imagine how Jacob felt about that. The one he had put all of his affection on. The one that he thought would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He was going to be the next patriarch. I'm convinced that that's what Joseph, or that's what Jacob wanted. And now he's gone. All of his dreams go up in smoke. The one he loved is gone from him. He's dead. And for 13 or more years, almost maybe 15 or 17 years, he thinks Joseph is dead. Finally, we know that he's not dead. But do you see what that does? For Jacob, that made him take his eyes off of Joseph and begin to lean back into God again. What a very severe 
mercy. Same thing for Joseph. Very close to his father, very covered over by his father. He was defended by his father. He was protected by his father. And so he's very, he tells his brothers his dreams and they get mad at him. He tells them another dream. They're going to bow down to him. And he's not afraid to tell them that. Why? Because he feels the full protection of his father. And he's out there. He's not useful to anyone. And so what happens? He spends 13 years either as a slave or in a dungeon. 13 years before he's useful to anyone. What about Moses? Grows up in the palace of Pharaoh. He knows that the Israelites are his people. He's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He goes out and sees an Egyptian beating one of the slaves, one of his fellow Hebrews, and he kills the Egyptian. Because he thinks he's the one that's going to lead them everywhere. He takes matters into his own hands. He's educated. He's part of the Pharaoh's household. He can do whatever he wants. But when Pharaoh finds out, he has to escape for his life. And what does he do? He goes to the desert for 40 years. 40, 40 years. He doesn't get called by God to lead the children of Israel out until he's 80 years old. What a severe mercy of God. And there's story after story after story. David losing his kingdom for a time because Absalom came in because of his sin. There's, it's over and over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, what's the point? God's love God loves his people and he will love them severely so that they wake up and see that he's the only one who is worthy to pursue. He's the only one who is worthy to pursue. Some of you have gone through horrible things. You may not even know why, but God's interest is is in relationship with you and he will go to any lengths to get you back. What is your reaction to suffering and difficulty? So many become bitter. I went on Friday to see the new uh, Indiana Jones movie. And uh, I thought it was really cool. So, you know, um, but, and if there was anything wrong with it, I didn't go. I just read about it. Anne hates that joke. Yeah. My wife hates that joke. Sorry. She's just frowning right now. All right. Anyway, I went to see it and Indiana Jones now is an old man and he's angry and he's cranky. And we find out, now this is not really a spoiler because this is part of the theme all the way along. So I'm not going to tell you the end of the movie or anything. Just to know that he lost his son in the war and the death of their son drove a wedge between him and his wife and they split up. And so he's an old man, he's angry, he's alone. And he's about to retire. That happens at the beginning of the movie. He's retiring. And he's hard to even live with. Why? Because he's so bitter. He's so bitter about what has happened. That his son's gone and now his wife is gone. That difficulty consumed his life so that now he's alone with no friends and no life. The bitterness has overwhelmed him. 
The whole point is that he staked his life on his son and his wife. He had put all of his hopes in them. They were the reason that he lived, and now they were gone. But see, if you stake your life on something you can lose, then you will be consumed with fear when that thing is threatened, or you'll be consumed with anger. What are we putting our lives on? Are we bitter because we've lost something? And so what does God do? He takes away that thing because he wants it. He wants us to be consumed with him. See, this is what he does. When we have our sights set on something, he takes it away. And it's painful. It's like dying. This is what he means, that you take your cross daily and you follow him. It's called taking off those things that we so desire in our hearts. And in the words of the missionary Jim Elliott, who lost his life as a young man in the jungles of Ecuador, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The severe mercy of God, the severe love of God is his absolute love for his children because he doesn't want us going to destruction. Number four, the pursuing love of God. So the whole point of this book is that God pursues his people. That's the beauty of the book of Hosea. They have prostituted themselves. He seeks them. He finds them. He goes after them. He loves them enough to pursue them and to woo them back. It's hard enough that God has asked Hosea to marry a prostitute. But now he's asking the impossible. He wants Hosea to go after her again. Again? She doesn't deserve mercy. She's been unfaithful. She's not done what she should have. I have biblical grounds for divorce here. And God asks him to go after her again. And here's the third, therefore, 2 verse 14. Therefore, this is his talking to the Israelites, right? It's all mixed in. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And then he makes these other promises. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. See, Hosea is a living example of what God himself does with his own. God's love is a pursuing love, a love that doesn't just want cold obedience. He wants our hearts. This is what he wants. And when our hearts are cold, when they're lackluster, when they're unbelieving, when they wander down the wrong path, he will stop at nothing to get us back. And it might be painful, but he will continue his pursuit. How do we know this? Well, because he stopped at nothing by sending his own son for us. This is how f the lengths that he was willing to go. The, the one that he loved the most in the entire universe, and he sends him to die on a cross for us. He's so committed to our joy that he's willing to send Jesus. But more than that, Jesus is willing to come because his love is as much as the Father's love for us. Hebrews tells us that it was his joy to come. And when he comes, he has to die this horrible death. And all of these people that absolutely reject him, that spit in his face, he actually pleads with the Father to forgive them. This is outrageous. Does this seem too good to be true to you? 
This is the message of the Bible. But brothers and sisters, if we think that the Christian life is just that God forgives us and we can basically do what we want, that he's there to provide for us whatever we want, anytime, because it's all covered under grace, I think we've gotten the wrong idea. He won't do that. Because he has thwarting and severe love for us. Because he wants our hearts. See, God will never stop with his own until he has our hearts. And when he has our hearts, he certainly has our obedience. Francis Thompson was an English poet in the 19th century. He basically failed at everything he tried. He tried to become a Roman Catholic priest, but that didn't work. He tried to become a medical doctor, but he failed again. He attempted to join the army, but was released only a few days later. He couldn't get along with his parents at home or with his friends. So he decided to leave and just become a vagrant in the downtown part of London. In a matter of weeks, he became addicted to opium. And he lived on alcohol and the garbage that came from the streets and the alleys in that ugly part of town. He was, in his own words, in a pit of squalor, no shirt beneath my tattered coat, bare feet in broken shoes. I was a worthless waif of a man. And yet beneath the shirtless vagabond, there was a heart that God sought after. He tracked that waif of a man and found him through an incredible chain of events. See, after God found him, he aroused within him this tremendous ability to write poetry. In fact, Francis Thompson ultimately wrote what, in the, in, in the words of many poetry critics, was the greatest ode ever put into print. It's called The Hound of Heaven. It was autobiographical of how God chased him. Here's a little bit of it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him an underrunning laughter, still with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet, and a voice above their beat, naught shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. Unless it's Jesus, there is no shelter for us. There is no shelter. We may pursue whatever we want to pursue, but it all ends the same way. Have you been thwarted? Does it feel severe? He's pleading with you. More than that, he's pursuing you. He gave his all his only son to die in your place so that you might turn to him and find your life in him. That's the gospel, and it changes everything. Let's pray.